Right. Grateful to be have another opportunity to get up here and bring the word to you. I know um, just this is one of those topics that uh, I've longed to have an opportunity to teach on. When I went to our old church heritage, it was kind of like a constant struggle on a topic like this because faith and repentance is so foundational to our faith. So in going back and just reviewing that time, it's such a blessing just to look out there and, you know, see obviously some people that I went to Heritage with. I met Brendan at Heritage. Greg and I went to church for several years and you almost feel like you're ducking all the time when you're battling things that define orthodoxy. And so to have this opportunity to bring you the word of God about something as foundational as our faith, you know, our hope in Christ, it means a lot to me because my hope one day was God was going to change that church and have them believe these things. But you know what? God brought me to a church that he changed here. And to me, that's just as special because I know what it's like to come from that journey of rejecting God's sovereignty over faith, God's sovereignty over repentance. It just, it didn't seem like it was that long ago when Noel was tiny and Annie was tiny and Sarah was tiny and me and Greg were arguing in my kitchen and <laughs> over, over Calvinism, you know, and we were going to those men's book and breakfast that were just straw men to death, you know, when Calvinists don't evangelize. And I was like, well, if they don't do that, why are we even bringing this stuff up? And we didn't know any better. We just went along with it. I do remember Noel yelling, yelling at me, telling me to stop yelling at her dad, though. <laughs> you were too little to remember. But that was, Greg and I had some good back and forth, and the Lord showed us very fast uh, that God does as he pleases. And that... Faith and repentance are things that God requires. And inability does not mean culpability. You know, it doesn't change just because someone is unable and unwilling to receive the things of God. It doesn't remove their human responsibility that they're going to answer to God. So human responsibility is one of the things we shouldn't even have to debate over. It's already baked into the cake. There's a God who created us all that we're going to answer to. And that's a fact. When we, when we think about this church, you know, I look at Stephen. If it weren't for Stephen being, coming to this church, Stephen invited us to this church. But we debate things at this church, and I'm very grateful for that. We debate things that don't define orthodoxy, right? And what I mean by that is we don't debate the Trinity, we don't debate hell. We don't debate the atonement. We just don't. We all have the same views on these things, but that doesn't mean we don't debate. And there's room for disagreement, and that makes me very thankful because that means this is a healthy church. I've been to churches where debate isn't allowed. Our last church we came from, but that wasn't the only church. I've been to churches where they were like, well, this is what we teach. And I'm like, well, that's not an essential to faith. It's adiaphora. It's not essential. They're like, oh, it's essential here. 
And so we're really blessed. I don't think a lot of you even understand that one can hold the various distinctions outside of the essentials and still be orthodox and be a member here. Okay, Stephen and I have debated post-millennialism and amillennialism even back when I was a dispensationalist. But we've never stopped being brothers, right? And I think that's really important. You know, someone could hold to these different views and be a member in good standing at this church and even be an elder, you know, and even be an elder. And I think that's because when it comes to these differing doctrines that are allowed, I think it's because God has given our elders discernment and they know what real unity is and what we should be united around. And for that, I just before I get into this foundational topic, I just wanted to say how grateful I am for that, because I think a lot of you, some of you, this is your only rodeo being in a church like this and watch this church transform. But when you've been around and you've been to different churches and you see what's out there, it really does make you grateful for what God has given you, you know. And I, I know I see Greg back there nodding. He understands. And so I will say this, though. I know that our elders also are discerning when it comes to guarding the pulpit in this church. I don't think we would have somebody get up here and teach antinomianism or semi-Pelagianism or easy believism. Those are deal breakers. Those are bad doctrines that have injured the church. I'm not saying we can't have fellowship or hang out with people who believe those things because most of them are confused, but for someone to espouse those things or exegete those things, they would be in error doing those things. And so I think those are dangerous doctrines that are to be avoided and to be stood against. So I think when it comes to this uh, topic, this is, it's very dark out there right now. You think of how when I got saved almost 15 years ago, I think it was almost like 55% of evangelicals didn't even believe that Christ was the only way to God. And it's gotten a lot worse. It's very, very dark out there, very dark in churches. And so these topics on this catechism, I think we kind of take for granted because we're in a good church that teaches sound doctrine, wholesome words. And we shouldn't do that. We should not take these things for granted because when you look outside, there is a lot of darkness. Just look in this area and see how many gospel preaching churches there are. You won't find very many that are faithful. So let's pray and get into question 90. Father, I just, once again, I'm so grateful for this church, our elders, these body of believers, this ecclesia, these called out ones, Lord. I pray that you would continue to bless this church, Lord. We thank you for the blessings that you have already rested upon this church, Lord. Just thank you for the outreaches that we have, a place that we can come to and be fed, Lord, and be encouraged and encourage one another, Lord. It really is a piece of what glory is going to be like, Lord, and we're so grateful for that, Father. But we also ask tonight that you would just bless this time, just cause my words to be sound and wholesome, and that they will be a blessing to the hearers, Lord, and even myself, Lord. And help us to leave here ready to go to war for Christ. And we pray, that, we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, question 90. What does God require that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Answer, 
to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, Acts 20, 21, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Charles Haddon Spurgeon stated that faith and repentance are inseparable. I've even heard people say, oh, they're kind of different sides of the same coin. God requires faith to escape his wrath. Two things that only God can provide. If God does not require, does not provide a sinner with faith and repentance, the sinner will perish. Nevertheless, this is what the Lord requires from us. Two things that we cannot offer him. He must grant them to us. He is not obligated to grant repentance and faith to anyone. God cannot be coerced into this. He is sovereign over salvation. Okay. And at times we sit here, we proclaim those things. But when it comes to our doorstep and we see our loved ones who do not exercise these things, that's when it's a struggle. So it's one thing to proclaim it. It's another thing to live it. Okay. But we need, to keep, we need to cling to our king and kiss the ring of his providence. As God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And I pray that tonight I'll be able to demonstrate that. That it is just for the Lord to require these things, even though we are unable to provide them. Faith and repentance both do not originate with us, nor are they sustained by us. Also, what the use, outward means and benefits of our faith lead to with regard to knowledge. I just want to back up for a minute and think of that, you know, the, the first part about the Lord requiring these things and we're unable you know, I've had a lot of discussions with people who oppose Reformed theology and the doctrines of grace. And I remember when I, I opposed them, but some people try to spend a lot of time trying to attack these doctrines, right? Especially a lot of my Roman Catholic friends who are well-studied. And their argument usually goes a little like this. Well, it's unfair for God to, to have a system like you hold to where he doesn't give everyone a chance to believe, but he sends them to hell anyway. And so I think what they miss is, I'll turn right back around and ask them, well, aren't we all sinners? Do we all deserve to go to hell? They'll say, yes. I'll say, well, what's wrong with God giving people what they actually deserve? Does he owe you salvation? They'll say, no. So then they say, well, then how can someone be held accountable for something they can't even do? I said, well, don't people travel across the world and commit crimes because they're ignorant of what law they're going to be held to? Yeah, they say, sure, that happens. Are they still culpable for those things? Yes. Are there people who are mentally challenged who commit crimes? Are they even held culpable in a sense? Yes. 
So in a sense, you even agree that inability does not void out culpability. And at that point, it gets kind of silent because it would be just for God to destroy everybody. And that's that's one of the things I like what Sproul said. We're asking the wrong question. So I want us to keep that in mind as we go through this, that we don't want what's fair. We want grace. We don't want justice. So what is repentance? Biblical repentance is a change of mind or the heart. They're synonymous. When one discovers they have violated God's law and are ripe for destruction, the sinner sees himself or herself for what he or she is, a lawbreaker, guilty and headed towards hell. From heaven, God opens their eyes and awakens them to their desperate need for Christ. They see themselves perishing. And when this happens, they cry out for mercy. It's the process of the affirmation of the propositions of the gospel where the sinner agrees with God and the sinner looks upon Christ. And in this, in this sinner, a change of mind about sin that leads to a willingness that only God can grant to turn from it because it displeases God. See, repentance, I think, is something that we need to handle as carefully as we can because when we get into some of these circles, I think we're going to see in a minute, even in reform circles, we don't want repentance to add to the work of Christ. We don't because it doesn't. God is the one who grants us repentance that leads to life. Look what J.C. Ryle says about repentance. J.C. Ryle stated that true repentance begins with the knowledge of sin. The eyes of the repentant person are opened. He sees the length and breadth of his holy law with distress and confusion. He sees the extent, the enormous extent of his own transgressions. To his surprise, he discovers he has been under a huge delusion by thinking of himself as a good person with a good heart. You know, when I read this, I was like, man, was this, this man's describing my conversion, right? I think most of us had that, right? Where we're shocked into reality and we're like, this is, I'm going to hell, right? And it just, all of us are converted different, right? But all of us are granted repentance. Rao does an incredible job of defining repentance biblically. And I believe it fits with this verse of the catechism selected. Acts 20, 21, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That part toward, I didn't write down my notes what that word is, but I know that Obviously, the Bible is perfect. And this description here is how we need to visualize repentance. Saving faith and repentance is a turning to Christ and placing our faith in him, his person and his work. OK, so repentance is a turning to Christ. Saving faith is believing in the perfect life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our righteous righteousness okay he was delivered for our transgressions he was raised again for our justification 
but nevertheless will be saved by his life. Okay? A lot of times when we're preaching the gospel, we sometimes forget that, that the person and work of Christ, he, you know, he had to live a perfect life. He was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. That's us, right? So by faith, that, that's the biblical definition of faith. We also could go to Hebrews uh, as well. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I'll tell you what repentance is not, though. It's not a turning from sin in order that Jesus can save you. It's not like, it's not some self-help program where you see yourself and like, I'm going to polish myself up so that I'm savable. That is not repentance. That is not repentance, okay? As a matter of fact, uh, even some of the, my wife and I watch a lot of the street preaching videos with our kids and one night we were watching them and I was being quiet and I wanted to see if my wife could discern and it didn't take her long to say, that guy's teaching works. And the guy, the guy who got stabbed at the Giants game was in the line, right? What was his name? Uh, Brian. Yeah, Brian Stowe. And there was a lady arguing also in the line, and she was preaching complete antinomianism. So here this guy is teaching work salvation and antinomianism. And I was like, wow, I feel sorry for those people. They're getting two horrible messages, right? But you hear repentance defined kind of like this. Stop sinning and Jesus will save you. That's not repentance. That's not repentance. Repentance is, like I said, when you turn to Christ, God awakens you to sin and he grants you repentance where you have a desire to be free from sin, a desire to turn from sin, because it's not even possible for you to turn from all your sins when you come to Christ. You don't even know all your sins. So. It's one of those things we really need to handle properly. A lot of times it's poorly worded, uh, poorly, therefore it's going to be poorly misunderstood. We're going to lead to this Wesleyan perfectionism, which I believe is a works heresy. And like I said, just like repentance, faith is not adding your personal choice to follow Jesus to the work of Christ. We used to sing a hymn and at Heritage used to drive me crazy. I'm not even going to sit here and try to pretend. I have decided to follow Jesus. I almost feel like we're going to start out here beating our chest too, right? It just, I mean, I want to knock people who like that hymn, but man, it just is so libertarian free will. I just, it just used to make me nauseous singing it. B.B. Warfield said, we are saved by grace through faith, not on account of faith. Okay? And what he meant by that is we don't bring faith to the table and God rewards us with salvation. It just doesn't work that way. God doesn't look down the quarter of time and see who's going to choose him and then he chooses them based on the choice they make. First of all, that's not even, that doesn't even make sense. Second of all, God would have to look into the future and learn something. That contradicts scripture. And so I think we should agree with Warfield here. Even in semi-Pelagian circles, a lot of my friends will say, well, yeah, faith is a work. I'll say, well, a work, like our work, they'll say, yeah, see? He said, see, daughter, your, your faith has made you well. I said, yes, it is a work, but we exercise a secondary cause. The ultimate cause is God. 
It is a work. It's the work of God. And we're going to see that here in a minute. Okay, in his masterpiece, A.W. Pink stated in studies on saving faith, no sinner ever comes to Christ until the Holy Spirit first comes to him. And no sinner will savingly believe on Christ until the Spirit has communicated faith to him. And even then, faith is an eye to discern Christ before it is a foot to approach him. You think about that. You have to understand why you're coming to Jesus. The biblical Jesus. Okay, the biblical Jesus. We've had a lot of people tell us, oh, I love Jesus. And then you start telling them who Jesus is. They're like, not that Jesus. I'm like, I'm sorry. That's the only one there is. That's the only one there is. So I love what Pink says here. It helps us understand the ordo salutis, God's order of salvation. Makes us understand that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But how does that faith come? It comes from God. It comes from God. For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What is the gift of God? Faith is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. Okay, as we said earlier, repentance, it's a change of mind. Jesus said in Luke 13, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, if your minds are not changed and, and you don't, understand the things that are proposed to you in the good news and you do not affirm them there's no way you can affirm them without your mind being changed and that changing comes from god not man remember that the next time somebody tells you about this libertarian free will or you know that mumbo jumbo you make sure you remind them well man is totally depraved so these things you're saying they, they just can't add up romans 2 verses 3 and 4 says and do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? See, it's God's goodness that leads us to change our mind. It's God's goodness that leads us to what repentance is. And repentance leads to fruit. Matthew 3, 7 and 8 says, but when he saw, he being John the Baptist, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. A turning to Christ produces a desire inside. That desire leads to a willingness to forsake sin and to be free from it. You see how that works? There's a process in it. That's why when John 3, when it says the spirit blows where it wills, you cannot understand the sound of it or where it's going. So is everyone who was born of the spirit. If God doesn't give you the new birth, there's no way you'll change your mind. There's no way you'll believe on Jesus. It just won't happen. It just won't happen. So when God raises the dead sinner, the process of regeneration, this is what takes place. But this is why John the Baptist was so adamant in this text when addressing the Pharisees, that they would bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Okay, kind of reminds me of John chapter eight. 
when the Pharisees were talking to Jesus. They said, well, Abraham's a sin since we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we'll be made free? <laughs> well, they weren't in bondage. He said, what did he say to them? You are of your father, the who? The devil. And so you think of what John was dealing with here in, in Matthew. It's the same thing. Because they were trusting in their lineage. They were trusting in their ethnicity. You even hear people who claim to be Christians. I, we go to the pantry all the time. Oh, I come from a long line of Christians. Uh, Grandpa Paul and Grandma Ma, they were, they were Christians. Mama was a Christian. But what does that mean for you? Salvation is not by birth, by lineage. By the new birth, yes. Not by physical birth. Okay, or else Jesus wouldn't say you need to be born again to Nicodemus, right? So we'll talk more about that lineage here at the end. But obviously they couldn't do this because they didn't see themselves as an abomination to God. They didn't see themselves as the enemies of God. Just like all unregenerate, unconverted people are marching towards destruction because they make an idol out of themselves and what they perceive God to be. And that's themselves. Okay? Every unsaved person, in some sense, has violated the first commandment, having another God before them. And they don't need to look far. That God is them. You know, on a topic like this, when we can't really talk about depravity, I really felt like this was befitting to add this quote in here. This is another quote from Pink's book, The Total Depravity of Man. It is, therefore, a testing doctrine, especially of the preacher's soundness in the faith. A man's orthodoxy on this subject determines his viewpoint of many other doctrines of great importance. If his belief here is a scriptural one, then he will clearly perceive how impossible it is for men to improve themselves, that Christ is their only hope. He will know that unless the sinner is born again, there can be no entrance for him into the kingdom of God, nor will he entertain the idea of a fallen creature's free will to attain goodness. He will be preserved from many errors. Andrew Fuller stated, I never knew a person verge toward the Arminian, the Arian, the Sicinian, the antinomian schemes without first entertaining diminutive notions of human depravity or blameworthiness. Said the well-equipped theological instructor, J.M. Stifler, it cannot be said too often that a false theology finds its source in inadequate views of depravity. You want to know why all this folly is going on in the church nowadays? People don't know the Bible. <laughs> people don't teach the Bible. The doctrines of grace, people mock at them and scorn them and laugh at them. Okay, But these men knew what they were talking about. All the other heresies come when you get away from orthodoxy. And in an inadequate view of depravity gives us, like I said, most of the false teachings from the fall to today. I like the part right here when he said um, the blameworthiness. Now, why did I say from the fall to today? What did Adam say? It's not my fault, God. It's this woman you gave. It's this woman you gave. Even Adam needed a lesson in depravity, right? This is why we should engage our semi-Pelagian confused brothers in the faith. Arminians and articulate to them the dangers of it. How it elevates man and brings God down 
to be portrayed as a weak, impotent God. This doesn't help the unregenerate see their sin, but it rather helps them mock God. Should ask for prayer. We have a brother that we saw the church with coming over tomorrow. I was telling Greg, man, we need to talk to this brother about some doctrine, some theology. You know, the brother gets a little testy, but appreciate your prayers. Supposed to hang out with them tomorrow. Getting convicted right now that I need to say something to him. But like I said, you don't want man to be elevated. I don't know. Some of us have seen those memes where we see, you know, Calvinists and we see Armenian doing this. It's actually true when you peel the layers back and they don't even see it. And all this surrounds faith and repentance, right? Because they believe that it totally comes from man. It also explains why the unregenerate have a perverse view of God and of themselves because they don't understand justice. If you're depraved, you're not going to understand what justice is. Proverbs 28, 3 says, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. R.C. Sproul said, if we despise the justice of God, then we're not even Christians. Think about that. If you despise the justice of God, you are not a Christian. I'm not, do I need to say it again? If you despise God's justice, you're not saved. If you do not understand what hell is, what the law of God is, that you are a lawbreaker and that you deserve to go to hell and you will actually go there, you don't know the Lord, okay? There's people who say, oh, hell's just an imagination. It's just that and the other. Well, it's not what the Bible says. Okay? I even fear for people when they pump their fist in God's face saying, I would never worship a God like that. I say, well, you claim to know Jesus, right? I say, yes. Well, I think you're in for a very big surprise. I just hope that you understand that the way you're approaching God is highly offensive to him. God does not owe you this. And this God that you say you won't worship, maybe you're not even worshiping the God that you proclaim to know. It's really terrifying when we hear some of, some of these things come out of people's mouths who profess to be believers, okay? If we do not understand justice, we won't understand our need for faith or repentance. We won't understand the fact that hell is a just punishment for your sins. Why would you fly to Christ if you don't understand that? Lots of people don't understand that. That's why they don't have faith. Okay? Even in uh, Hebrews 4, when they didn't go in and they were judged, the Bible says because it, was, they weren't, it wasn't mixed with faith. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. And why is that? Because God leaves sinners in an unregenerate state so that they could suffer the just punishment of their sins. Romans 8 gives us more insight into the meanings of what Proverbs 28 is saying. Because the carnal mind is at enmity with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, They cannot please God. They won't do it. The carnally minded is synonymous with the unconverted, unregenerate man which is also synonymous with this evil man we see here who doesn't understand justice. The carnally minded man is at war with God. He's at war with God. 
He doesn't have peace with God. Think of Romans 10. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the unregenerate person. You can't be at war with God and have peace with him at the same time. You can't because you don't have faith. And the only way you have faith is if God saves you. The Greek word for flesh here or carnal is sarkos. It can also mean physical flesh, but it can also mean an unsaved person. There are, there are no such thing as carnal Christians, by the way. Okay, that doctrine, that's a whole nother message, but that's why I wanted to bring up sarkos. It literally has, I think, two meanings, and there's not a third meaning of Christians that are carnal, okay? But this, in this text, the, the, this evil man who is unregenerate, there's a distinction here. There's a distinction because it says that evil men don't understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. Now, we know that those who seek the Lord are Christians. That's why we understand, because God has given us ears to hear. Hearing is understanding. Eyes to see. Okay, That comes from God as well. Those who seek the Lord are the elect. They're made alive by God. Those are the ones who lay hold of eternal life by exercising faith. They understand the justice of God. They understand the holiness of God and their need for repentance and their need to cling to Christ. It's like we sing that hymn all the time. Justice has been satisfied. Well, how do we get there? How do we get there? God brought us there. This is where systematic theology, when it's done correctly, biblically, shines as bright as the sun. Because when we read these verses, obviously there was a context for them in the old covenant. But then when we look and we say, well, wait a minute, this verse fits with this verse and this verse better explains this verse. And so when you understand systematic theology, it truly is a it's just a flow of sound exegesis and application. That's a harmonious melody to those who understand the heavenly language of God. But in order to have that understanding, God has to give it to you once again. It's all the work of God. I love what Paul Washer said here. And you can kind of see why I quoted this about faith and repentance. He said, God saved you for himself. God saved you by himself. And God saved you from himself. He didn't say anywhere you did anything. God did it. God did it. How did that happen? Just like the catechism says, what does God require for us to escape his wrath? Faith and repentance comes from God. Okay? Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. If it's granted on behalf of Christ to believe, tells us faith is believing, right? Where does it originate? From God. So when it comes to, excuse me, Regeneration, just like faith and repentance are inseparable, we know regeneration precedes faith and repentance. Some people say it happens right away. I think it's a bit of a mystery. Like, could someone be regenerated and God gets them a couple days later? Who knows? I don't know. I've had that debate and sometimes seems fruitless because God doesn't really tell us, right, exactly. But it's interesting to discuss. 
But this is how God saves his people from their sins, with faith and repentance. And from A to Z, it is the work of Christ alone. This is well illustrated in Acts eleven eighteen, And it says, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Remember that word Gentiles can also mean nations. Those who are outside of Israel. God has granted them repentance that leads to life. Where did it come from? God. Repentance is one of those doctrines we have to handle with precision. because It is the work of Christ and Christ alone. In John 6, 28 and 29, when Jesus was questioned about working the works of God, pay close attention to his answer. Okay, I feel like we could preach this every week at the food pantry. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. It's the work of God for us to believe. And we have to understand that. It's the work of God. It's, it's the work of God to not only grant us faith, but to sustain us in faith. It's not your work. It's God's work. It's Jesus who holds on to me. That's why I have hope tomorrow. That's why I have hope today. What I love what MacArthur said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You would. Would have been lost It's the work of the living God. In John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus said, now we know John 6, right? Okay. Every Calvinist knows John 6. Yeah, you want to know the doctrines of grace, irresistible grace, limited atonement, okay, total depravity with a vengeance right here, okay? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. So you think about this. How did they come to Jesus? They had to exercise what? Faith. He said, all that had been given to the son, obviously, we're talking about eternity. Those are the ones who actually come. Giving is the antecedent to the coming. Antecedent means what logically proceeds. What comes first? God gives the son a people. Those people come to Christ. 
Okay, so there's a there's an order to this. The only reason anyone comes to Christ and exercises faith is because they're the elect. And coming to Jesus involves faith and repentance, which both are gifts. This is why when we preach the gospel, what is so clear to us falls on deaf ears because they don't have ears to hear and eyes to see. Just like the parables say, right? Just like the parables say. Okay, so it's it's a trip. Sometimes you ever feel like, man, it's shocking. It's so clear. And we tell it. We tell it to people and they're like, nope, don't believe that. Even the Lord marveled at their unbelief, right? God himself marveled at people's unbelief. And he was right there with them. I had a guy tell me the other day, oh, man, nobody ever saw anybody come back. I said, man, his name is Jesus Christ. 500 people saw him in Acts. What is that stuff you're talking, man? You know, I think we need to know our word. And I say it over and over again. We need to bathe in the word of God so that when we go outside every day to work, you're going to war. You're going to war. OK, no man in, engages himself and entangles himself in the affairs of this life. You got to remember, you're a soldier for Christ. You are a soldier for Christ. And a soldier has to have training and preparation. If you don't have training and preparation, how are you going to defend your faith? Okay, you girls back there, John, all you young people, bathe in the word. Turn off the TV. Get off the video games. It ain't about you. Okay, it ain't about you. God didn't create you for you. Okay, and all of us as well. We need to remember that. Okay, so like I said a minute ago, people cannot hear us. Just like when John chapter 8, Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, why are you not able to listen to my speech? Because you weren't able to listen to my word. They couldn't hear it. They could hear it audibly, but they could not hear it. They could not hear it, not in a saving way. Okay, so Jesus said here, that no man comes unless he's drawn. And that he'll, that same one who comes is the same one who's raised up the last day because coming to Jesus is a supernatural work of God. Okay, winding down here to the last catechism verse, we know that uh, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. I think we need to remind a lot of our brothers that you're not the author of your faith, Jesus is. You're not even the finisher of your faith, Jesus is. So moving to our uh, benefits as we get down to these last couple of verses, it says in Proverbs 8.33, this is one of the catechism verses. It says, hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Now, what is this instruction? Special revelation. Believers who obviously, the, I'm going to keep talking about this, the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Those are the ones who have the desire from a circumcised heart to obey and they don't disdain it. Okay, if you turn back a chapter to Proverbs 7, remember we're dealing with salvific wisdom here. Things that are only known by people who believe in Christ. He says, my son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. And my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your next of kin that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Hey, wisdom 
produced by the fruits of faith and repentance looks like this. It has a desire to obey God. The Christian will treasure God's commands in our hearts. Treasure and keep them as the apple, the law, as the apple of our eye. I love this verse because you think about this. In the new covenant, it says that God has written his law on the tablets of our hearts, right? But I love this verse right here in Proverbs because it says he instructs his people to write his law on the tablets of our heart. Now, how are we going to do that? You better be in the word of God in order to know the law of God. Okay, what do the psalmists say? What do the psalmists say? He said he delighted in the law of God. He was exercising discernment because he didn't want to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And the only way we're going to be kept from this seductress, male or female, with flattering words is to keep God's commandments and live and live. Fleeing sexual immorality. First John 5, 3. It's like the New Testament version of this. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and they're not burdensome. And they're not burdensome. I'm going to back up and reread that proverb. Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. To disdain something. Oh, man, I got to do that again. If we love God and keep his commandments, I'm not saying that Christians can't struggle. I'm saying we need to understand what God is telling us here. There's a willingness to want to obey God. Does it happen all the time? No. Do we sin? Yes. Do we fall short? Absolutely. But when we do, think about how you think about yourself at that moment. Like, man, why'd I do this, man? Why'd I do this? I failed, I failed you again, Lord. I failed you again. And then that results in us needing to confess those sins. But it's the desires that God changes. That's what we need to keep in mind here. Faith and repentance has a fruit to it. So I love what he says. He says, you know, we're to keep these close like a relative um, when it comes to wisdom and know what it is. We're to treasure them. You think of searching for hidden treasure. You know, the imagery here, do, you, do we search for God's word? Do we search for wisdom and understanding? Do we search for it like that? Because if we don't, we need to pray that God would give us that desire. Okay, it takes discipline. It's what being a disciple is. And these things flow from uh, a converted person. Proverbs 2, uh, 1 through 6 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Okay, Christians are the ones who possess the greatest wisdom on this planet. There's, there's wise un unbelievers. A lot of them are foolish in many ways. They may have wisdom over us in certain things, but not in what really matters. Okay, worldly people have wisdom too, but it's inferior to God's wisdom. It's inferior. It's truly inferior. The wisdom of God is superior. 
Why? Because God is supreme. Something we should desire after is to gain knowledge, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ, and grow in our understanding and become wise and shine like Daniel said, shine like the stars, okay, and glorify God. Because nothing compares to the mind of Christ. So, by the time we get down here to verse 6, I'd already talked about the imagery that it describes. You know, we were talking about it in Sunday school, about how there's so many intelligent people out there that can make us look foolish. But what does it really matter? You can know astrophysics and all these things that I'm a big dummy in. That's fine with me. I have a greater desire for you to know the Lord, though. And it's sad how people don't even have that own desire. So when it comes to faith and repentance, I like what Spurgeon said here. He said, if sinners be damned, let them leap over us to go to hell. Okay? We should be willing to, to, to be uh, beacons of light, putting ourselves at harm, in harm's way, if necessary. Okay? Because God has commanded us to do those things. Okay? Paul said, keep not silent, for I have people in this city. I have people in this city. Okay? God's elect, he said, I do everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation. What does salvation involve? Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance in the new birth. Okay? There's God's people that are out there. Um, where's Christine at? Is she in here? Okay. I just was thinking about her yesterday with all the, all the times she would come and ask questions. But I remember seeing her like the first couple of times when she was coming here. I was just like, she kept asking, kept coming, and eventually the Lord saved her, you know? And I'm sure there's more people that God has that he's going to bring through the pantry that, he, that are going to come to know him, okay? And even through our uh, Fridays, we don't know how many people are going to come to Christ if they already haven't or maybe will in the future. We need to keep that hope alive, okay? Isaiah five, uh, 55 is our last verse here tonight. It says, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I've given you to be a witness to the people a leader and a commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. Now, why? I know some of you like, if you know the catechism, there's only two verses there. Now, why did I choose to read all eight of them? Or all seven, whatever, six of them? Because I believe this whole section here, and we, I'm going to breeze through this, but this whole section here has to do with the wisdom of God. Okay, this is prophecy. This is prophecy. Uh, if some of you know this text, uh, John chapter 6 is being quoted here. 
Isaiah chapter 11. Stephen and me's favorite boxing chapter. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about what we agree on here. Okay. One of the benefits of salvation is understanding things that are hidden from the world. The mysteries of Christ. I'm not talking about Gnosticism because God speaks his word plainly. But when you're a Christian, you understand things that unbelievers don't. Okay. So that this text would be an entire sermon in and of itself, but God's people are to contemplate how we live. You think about that in the first couple of verses when he says, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Okay, we're to contemplate how we live in this world. That's what exercising wisdom is. We're to use good discernment, our time, our resources, our money. They're not ours, they're God's, okay? And we know it's a constant struggle to have our focus on the right things in this world. And the right things are how shall we love God, glorify him, and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism states. We can only do that by faith. The just shall live by faith. That's what Habakkuk says. And sometimes our faith is challenged by lopsided indulgences or misguided focus, which are sin and the results of our depravity. You know, we sometimes do church on Sunday and think, yeah, it's kind of like about me for the rest of the week. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> Every day is a battle to live for Christ. Every day is. Okay, I'm no different from you. I like things. Nothing wrong with that. But do things have me is the question, right? Okay, same problem in Isaiah's day, right? But sometimes uh, these challenges, when we think of when he asked about this money, it's not that spending is a bad thing for Israel. It's not a bad thing for the Israel I'm looking at today, the Israel of God. Spending money is not a bad thing, but it's our focus on the right thing. Because notice the Lord points out, why are you spending on these things on things that do not satisfy? And on the surface, it appears to be confusing because the next verse he says, to delight in abundance. What abundance is this? The abundance of the things of the Lord. We're to have our hearts focused on the right things. And the text, like I said, it, it references this John 6 in the passage where Jesus said that um, about the food and the drink indeed being eternal life. Okay, so that's what he was quoting here. And then in verse 3, this everlasting covenant, these sure mercies of David, it only has one proper meaning. So I'm about the people of God. Okay, David sat on a throne reigning over the people of God. Jesus sits on David's throne, reigning over the people of God and reigning as the king of all kings, okay? So the sure mercy of David. This text was addressing the, the ruling Messiah, okay? And we talked about this also in Sunday school. So the warning for Israel has always been the same. The elect are to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he is near. Let the unrighteous forsake his thoughts. He's talking about repentance. To repent and believe in their king. Directly relates to the catechism, culminating God's people, but it ends with the mystery of Israel. When he said, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Okay? This mystery concerning Ourselves. We need to just try to think for a minute if you were in the first century and you were hearing Romans 11 live from the apostle. He'd be preaching through these prophetic texts for the first time. 
exegetically, telling you that the real meaning of them, right? The right meaning, breaking them down, okay? So I know a lot of times people don't really understand. We say, well, to give the New Testament priority. But without the New Testament, how would we even know what the brazen serpent is in Numbers 21? We wouldn't, right? How would we know uh, what Paul's talking about a lot of these texts and Jesus and all these things when he says, you see all these Old Testament passages? They're talking about me, okay? The Jews missed a lot of that. Why? Because the Old Testament had to take place. The, the New Testament had to take place. So we say give it priority. We're talking about in prophetic hermeneutic interpretation. So revealing to them that their thoughts were not their thoughts, God's revealed thoughts are the thoughts of the elect as we grow and are sanctified because we have the minds of Christ. Okay? Paul rhetorically asked this question. So if we were sitting there in the first century as he was breaking down this text, it would be pretty natural for a Jew to say, wait a minute, has God forgotten his people whom he foreknew? Well, Paul asked this question, but in Romans 9, it would have been a reasonable question to ask. It's like, wait a minute. So all my countrymen are over here sacrificing at this temple, and you got all these people telling us the Messiah's come over here. What's going on? If they truly are knowing God, what's going on over here? Well, the temple worship had become false worship at that because they did not know God. They did not know the day of their visitation. So you think about that. What does this culminate with? Why is it such a big deal? Because God's people are still ignorant of who Israel is, even today. And yet it has already been revealed. Who is Israel? Well, his name was Jacob, right? Jacob had a house and a people. And God changed his name to Israel. That house expanded. Okay? Look around you. Jacob is here. Israel is here. Jacob is the church. The church is true Israel. So the mystery of God in the first century, saints were ignorant of it then. Saints are ignorant of it today. Now, why am I talking about this? Because one of the benefits of our conversion is we know the things of God. True Israel is the church. Okay, we're not ignorant. You know, ignorance is one thing that blows me away. When Christians, this drives me mad. When brothers and sisters have this pious view of ignorance. Being stupid doesn't get you closer to God. It just doesn't. We can sit up here and say, well, I don't know this, I don't know that. Oh, I'm so spiritual. No, you're not. You're not. You are not at all. You're ignorant. And Paul said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brother, concerning this mystery. Or any others, really. Okay? There were people in the past who longed for these things to see him. Okay? And Jesus said, blessed are your eyes because they see. We need to remember that. So this mystery that God's people know are talking about the covenants of God. There's one tree, one flock, two lampstands, old covenant Israel, new covenant Israel, the natural branches, the ethnic Jews and the converts, the wild olive tree, the nations. Why am I saying all of this? Because if you don't understand this, you give birth to every heresy on the planet. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay, look how much ink is spilled over that. Who is Israel? It's not Rome. It's not British Israelism. It ain't the Hebrew Israelites. It ain't the Abrahamic faiths. It's not even what dispensational uh, people tell us. True Israel, and I'll end with this, Romans 2.27, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So true Israel is the church, and only those who have been converted know that and any other thing that involves wisdom from our conversion. So I'll take questions. think that's what that's talking about i believe jonah was saved obviously he wrote if he wrote some of the bible brother you can best believe you got some problems if you think he's not a christian right holy men of god spoke as they were moved by the holy ghost right so jonah wrote that why somebody else right <laughs> i guess the thing that i have when you talk about despising justice jonah did not want the Ninevites to be saved, right? Jonah wanted justice. He didn't want mercy. Yes. Yes. So he didn't despise justice. In fact, yeah. he despised the idea that the justice of God would not fall on, on the Ninevites. Yeah. On the Ninevites. Yeah. He was happy that the justice of God did not fall upon the Jews, but he wanted to see the, the Ninevites suffer. It's a good point. He had a misdirected view of mercy, right? Mercy for me, but not for thee, right? So, yeah. Anybody who is a holy man of God who spoke to be moved by the Holy Spirit, there's no way they're not converted. Unless you're going to embrace some, what's that nonsense? I had a guy who was a Wesleyan that said, yeah. You know, Paul got saved around Romans chapter 8. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> so would you think that then the author of the letter in Daniel, yeah. Do you think he saved them? Yeah, see. You think he is? Right. I well, you see. No, I'm saying. So I'm saying I think the Lord could use an unsaved person, just like He spoke through a donkey. Of course. You know, like Balaam. Right, but I'm only talking about the scope of that text, though. I'm not saying that God didn't speak narratively and all kinds of people that He spoke to the right things down historically, right? But concerning prophecy, concerning things that go forth, when he's talking about the holy men of God, I think he's talking about the, the prophets, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, we even see that, that Jesus uses Jonah as a, as a type of him, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so I mean, it is kind of hard to say, no, Jonah wasn't saved. Yeah, well, I've even heard people say Adam wasn't saved, and me and Greg have fun with what? that one. It's just... I'm like, well, I'm not, like, what? not you, dude. Saying about not you, dog. <laughs> no, but say so. All the righteous blood of Zacharias, a whole nother discussion. But any other questions? I don't, I'm sorry I went so long. Yes. Uh, I had one. You mentioned a quote by Pink that said that your faith needs to be your eyes before it's your feet. Can you just kind of describe that a little bit more, like, a little more detail? What does that mean by that? Yes. How do we, how do we gain from that? Yes. Now, I don't have the book right in front of me, but I did. I love pink and I love me some pink. So I think what he's saying is in John chapter three, unless a man is born again, we're talking about spiritual eyes, right? He cannot see the kingdom of God. And the only way you're going to enter something is by knowing who the, where the door is. And Jesus calls himself the door. So I think before you can actually march towards it, you, you got to see Christ. You got to see Christ before you fall down and call upon him. 
And I think it's imagery. So I think we got to be careful to make it be that because it's imagery that he's using. He's not saying it's imagery. He's not announcing it. He's assuming that the reader is going to use that hermeneutic in what he's saying. It's much like in scripture, you know. I go on some of these atheist websites and they're like, well, why aren't you guys gouging your eyes out? And I'm like, whoa. You can tell, well, they've taken things literal. You know, they don't look at hyperbole. They don't look at literary devices. And it's because God hasn't revealed those things to them. So I think it's imagery that he's using. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I think this kind of plays into the idea. I was going to ask maybe uh, it mentions a repentance unto life. Mm -hmm. So that would imply that there is a repentance that isn't unto life. And what would your take on that? What, what would you? How would you describe a repentance that's not unto life? False converts. You know, it's really scary. I was even listening to some guys that are orthodox. Even Paul Washer is kind of reversed on some of the ways he would define repentance when he got called out on some stuff. Uh, Ray Comfort, um, me and uh, Pastor Paul were talking a couple weeks ago about Ray, or a few days ago about Ray Comfort and the way he defines repentance. It does sound kind of Wesleyan sometimes, especially when he goes. He's very bold, but I think that I know. I think I know what he means. But when he says you need to turn from all these sins so that Jesus can save you, I'm like. like Absolutely, and it, I don't. I don't think Ray means it that way, but I think that um, there is, there are people, you know, and this is where reprobation comes in. I believe the wicked will always believe a lie, and I think this goes back to Mark four when he said, "So that seeing they see and do not perceive, and hearing they hear and do not understand, so that they do not turn." Like when I read the Nazareth, I was like, "Oh man, that's offensive, right?" It's like. Even as a Calvinist, I was like, wait a minute, God put this here. And you go back to that hint clause, lest they turn. Like, if this doesn't happen, that won't happen. No, God actually says, I don't want them to believe. That's why I blind their eyes. That's, that's a hard pill to swallow for people who are just trying to digest the doctrines of grace. So, I don't mean to go on a long soliloquy, but... Yeah, I um, think with the, with the repentance that doesn't lead to life... In a lot of ways, it makes me think of the seed that falls on the soil yes. that is with the thorns and the mm -hmm. thistles. It sprouts up at first and appears to have life. So there are there are those that, in a moment, because of their fear of the consequence of their sin, not necessarily their heart breaks because they've offended God, but because they've gotten caught and they don't want hell. Mm -hmm. They'll they'll be like a temporary repentance, a repentance that really only amounts to a surface level mm -hmm. little sprouting that doesn't actually ever grow roots or bear fruit. And as soon as they're not being looked at and they're not under the microscope anymore, they go back to the sins because that's really what they want. They, they just don't want to get caught in it. That, I would say, is a repentance that does not lead to life. Yeah. Repentance that leads to life is a repentance that starts with God giving you the eyes. So it's not just your feet running to a yes. temporary repentance, but you're seeing the need for true Contrition, your heart is broken, you have a, a contrite heart, like David says, a sacrifice that God desires is not you know, a, a burnt offering, but a, a humble spirit and a contrite yeah. heart. So that that inward change of attitude for yourself, where you think differently about your sin, you realize that you've offended God and you're mortified by it. Yeah. And that's that's the repentance that leads to life. And it's not one that starts with us, like you said. It's something right. that is alien to us. It's given to us by God. It's a yeah. It's a it's against our thoughts and our ways because God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. So he has Absolutely. To
There's a quote you just reminded me that I forgot to put in here by Sproul that actually hammered it out. But two scriptures come to mind, um, godly sorrow and then worldly sorrow, where it talks about, yes, about godly sorrow produces repentance, right? Worldly sorrow, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, it's all about me. Okay, Jesus, it's all about me again. Thanks. Appreciate that. Sproul's comment talked about the present tense, the active present participle when it comes to it. And I love what Pink said. He said, the Christian that has stopped repenting has stopped growing, right? So there are times when Christians fall into sin, right? But there are people who come to Christ, and that's what I cannot stand about these synergistic churches. Raise your hand for Jesus. I'm not saying Jesus is not reached. God doesn't reach people through the sinner's prayer and stuff like that. But I think that way more people are damned than they are saved because people raise their hand, I've even watched people go and get congratulated. They give them a salvation birth certificate and then they go live like the devil the rest of their life. But they said, I prayed that prayer. And Sproul's like, you know what? Faith is something that is present. It's not some moment in time that we said the prayer. Might as well pray the rosary then. You know? You know, it's good you say that because, I mean, I can speak on that. I was just talking about this, you know, with, they probably, I probably what I was talking to, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, growing up, you know, I was brought up under that system, you know, where you say a prayer. It was that system to where it's like, hey, you can make Jesus your Savior now and your Lord later, mm-hmm. right? They called it the, you know, the the, the, the fire insurance and all those things, right? Wow. I mean, People teach this madness, right? It's like, you know, that's why it was, it was such a big deal to me when I began to listen to guys like Paul Washer and and John MacArthur, right? Because I grew up under guys like T.D. Jakes and those guys. It was always about you, right? It was always about you. So, you know, but when you, when you hear Paul Washer say things like, well... If, he, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at, at all. all, yeah. Right? It's like, you know, you don't think about that. It's like, man, no, man, you know, he can be Lord over my salvation, but no, I'm, I'm going to do what I do. Brother, I love Paul Washer. You don't have to, and even with him, I don't think he ever did anything wrong. I just think that sometimes things are misunderstood, and that goes back to reprobation, right? We came out of heritage. How many times would Mincy say, well, you know, John, there's certain people, Jesus is their Lord. He's their Savior. He's just not their Lord. And I wasn't even saved, but I don't know, less than a year. And I said, that's not possible. The Bible says Lord and Savior. It doesn't say Lord or Savior. Yeah. And so I think even people who are in bad churches with bad doctrine, God has elect there. And God saved us and preserved us and got our families out of there eventually. Gregory. Understand a little more. Listen to MacArthur and, and Washer. Matter of fact, Washer gave a message the other day that 
that hit on that. And I'm just, I, I don't understand it. I, I don't understand how you can disassociate those two from each other. I think it's it, it, the problem with it is is that a lot of these people they see their kids come up in a new a new different generation and then their kids make these you know altar calls or whatever and they see their kids live like the devil or have no desire for anything of God and I even have heard it at this church but they prayed that prayer way back then and I'm like so they're good yeah they're good and I'm like oh I'm like Lord help me to have the right words to not be so abrasive because I'm used to a lot of my friends they will go at it with you over this stuff and I'm like you do and this is what gives birth to the carnal Christian doctrine and just like you guys who help me see these things Washer, Sproul, MacArthur guys that are sound right so then when I come around other guys that are sound I'm like oh, thank you Jesus because that stuff is poison that stuff is poison you, you just going to say something brother you know, just looking like the the example, kind of the analogy, kind of. It's like you know, a man who moves in with his, his girlfriend, right? It's like you get the benefits and all these things of marriage, but you don't have to make the commitment of it, right? I mean, same thing when it's like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take Jesus as my savior. Yeah, I don't want to go to hell, of course not. Hey, but I I want to live like these aliens still, but I don't want I don't want to go to hell, you know. Brother, preach. And there's one of my kids who always gets it right. I'm gonna put him on the spot when he was even little. Hey, Daniel, what did God come to save his people from? Just hell? What else? There you go. From sin and hell. When Daniel was real little, I'd be like, what did God save us from, Daniel, who believed? He'd say, sin and hell. And see, that goes back to Matthew 121. They shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's not in the future. That's right when you come to faith. And he is a marvelous savior. You think, I think of how many sins I've struggled with and been, feel like I can't get free from this. And God will break through. And then you're like, man, I can't believe I used to battle that so much. And it's not like I never do it again. But when you see God giving you victory over sin, it is God giving you victory over sin. It's not you. Because if it's up to you, you'd be like, man, <sighs> sin and its passion pleasures are only for a season, right? But I love when Galatians, when it says, walk in the spirit so that you do not fulfill the, the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh, war, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you want to do. We're in this flesh. We want to sin. And I don't know why we can't just admit that. We want to sin. We need God to restrain that sin in us. But God lives in us. That's the difference between us and the unbelievers. So these are battles we need to have with people because when they're teaching those things, I'm like, well, when we go to the abortion clinic, well, don't worry. It's a gospel issue. Unrepentant murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Talk about homosexuality or thieves or any of drunkards. These are gospel issues. If people want to promote antinomianism, they're saying the gospel is not good news. So we need to passionately fight these things, man. Jesus changes people. And what they're saying is, nah, he actually doesn't. They can still be saved. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If any man be in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I guess they don't believe that. <laughs> 
All right, we got time for one more. 7.55 in the summertime, so. Ain't nobody in school right now. Come on, Williams kids, throw up a question up here. Come on, swing for the fences. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Anybody else? All right. All right. Yeah. Father, I just once again thank you, Lord, uh, just for your word. I thank you for your spirit. And I thank you for your great love for us, Lord. And Father, we just are so grateful that we can just meditate on Second uh, Timothy when it says, we, if we are faithless, you remain faithful. And you cannot deny yourself because we're your body, Lord. We're so grateful to be called out of darkness into your marvelous light, Lord, and to be uh, on Christ, our cornerstone, being built up as living stones in this kingdom that you're building, Lord. We're so grateful to be a part of that. And we pray that you would bless it and, and and that you would cause it to grow even more from for forevermore, Lord, from our work here. Help us to remember our labors are not in vain and encourage us to keep pressing forward and marching forward for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.